in The Wounded Healer, Henry Nouwen retells a tale from ancient India. Four royal brothers decided each to master a special ability. Time went by, and the brothers met to reveal what they had learned. I have mastered a science, said the first, by which I can take but a bone of some creature and create the flesh that goes with it. I, said the second, know how to grow that creature's skin and hair if there is flesh on its bones. The third said, I am able to create its limbs if I have the flesh, the skin, and the hair. And I, concluded the fourth, know how to give life to that creature if its form is complete. Thereupon the brothers went into the jungle to find a bone so they could demonstrate their specialties. As fate would have it, the bone they found was a lion's. One added flesh to the bone, the second grew hide and hair, the third completed it with matching limbs, and the fourth gave the lion life. Shaking its mane, the ferocious beast arose, jumped on its creators. He killed them all and vanished contentedly into the jungle. The story tells us and implies that we too have the capacity to create what can devour us especially by rebelling against God by means of worshiping an idol. And there's no better example of this in the Bible than in the chapter we're going to read today as we continue our look in Exodus. The chapter we're going to read is Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 35. It is the chapter where the Israelites rebel against God and create an idol, a golden calf, and they worship it to their own ruin. There's a couple of words I would like to define to you before I begin. One of them is the word rebellion. What is the word rebellion? How would we define it? Rebellion is a refusal of obedience or order. It refers to the open resistance, open resistance against the order of an established authority. In this particular case, the authority is the Lord. A rebellion originates from a sentiment of indignation or disapproval of a situation and then manifests itself by the refusal to submit or obey to, to the authority responsible for the situation. Rebellion can be individual or collective, peaceful or violent. Another term I want to define is an idol. What is an idol? An idol is an image, symbol, or representation of a god used as an act of worship. That's an idol. If you recall last week, we saw the children of Israel were at the base of Mount Sinai. God finally he led them there. And they, God wanted to make sure that the children of Israel knew the concept of holiness so that they wouldn't just rush upon the mountain and get killed in violation of God's holiness. Now Moses is on Mount Sinai. We pick up the story now when God is revealing to Moses the law. The Ten Commandments, when God gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, 
all of the children of Israel heard the Ten Commandments. It wasn't just God and Moses. God told Moses to go down to the base of the mountain where all the people were, and all the people heard the Ten Commandments given by God. So all of them heard it. So they knew what the Ten Commandments were. And we're going to see that in, no sooner did they enter into the covenant with God, ratified by the blood. The blood was sprinkled on the people. Why was the blood sprinkled on the people? It was to show that the covenant between them is now official. Whenever you wanted to make official a legally binding agreement between two parties, blood was used. In this particular case, it was a treaty between a vassal and a suzerain. And a suzerain was a ruler, God. The vassal were the Israelites. Their treaty would be ratified and made official by the sprinkling of blood on the people. Before the blood is even dried, the people cheat on God. They heard the commandment, do not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything. The people got scared, said, no, we don't want to hear God speaking to us anymore. Moses, you tell us the words of God, because we hear God speak to us, and it frightens us. So Moses is now getting all of these instructions by God. Uh, by God. And this is where we pick up the story. And the question of this particular text is this. What happens when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol? That's the question for this entire chapter. What happens when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol? These are God's people now. These are God's covenant people, and they're rebelling openly to what God has already told them. Don't make an idol. So this is rebellion. What happens when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol? Number one, when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol, they pervert the true worship of the living God. Verses one to five. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come make us gods that shall go before us. For as, this, for, as, for as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Notice what has happened here. Aaron makes a golden calf with the gold, and the people said, This is your God, O Israel. Aaron then builds an altar. To build an altar was to make an object on which they were going to sacrifice animals. This is how they worshipped. Okay? And Aaron then says, Tomorrow is a feast to whom? To the Lord, not to the idol. So what's going on here? Oftentimes, people read the passage... 
and they assume here that the children of Israel are abandoning God and are worshiping the golden calf. That's not what's happening. Okay? We often, we read this passage and we think that the children of Israel are equating the golden calf with Yahweh, with the God of Israel. They're not making an equation here. An Old Testament scholar by the name of Peter Enns says this. He says, it is commonly accepted by Old Testament scholars today that the ancients did not equate an idol with the God, but it was some sort of earthly representation of that God. Specifically, it was thought that the calves or bulls functioned as pedestals for the gods seated or standing over them. In this sense, the calf was analogous to the Ark of the Covenant. The fact that both are made of gold strengthens this connection. This is important to remember because it is unlikely that the calf itself is being declared God by the Israelites as if they actually think that it brought them out of Egypt. Rather, like the Ark of the Covenant, the golden calf is the place above which God is enthroned, thus ensuring his presence with them. The calf is thus a pagan representation of the true God. In other words, the Israelites are not saying that the calf and not God brought them out of Egypt, but that God's presence is now associated with this piece of gold. That's what's happening. They see this golden calf that Aaron has made, and they associate God's presence with it. Not that it is God, but God's presence is with it. Just like in the Old Testament times, when the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies, the ark, that was the holy article in the Old Testament. They assumed that God's presence was over the ark. Not that the ark itself was God, but the presence of God hovered over the ark. Now the children of Israel are doing the same thing with the golden calf a pagan symbol, the most likely they would have picked up in Egypt. They still had their old ways. And so what they have done was taken this golden calf, and it was a representation of God's presence. Now God is going to lead us, and we know that his presence is with us because we have this calf that's going to re represent his presence. But this is a direct violation of God, how, how God wants to be worshipped. You shall make no image of any likeness of anything in heaven above that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. What the Israelites have done here is perverted the true worship by breaking the second commandment, which is talking about how the true God of heaven is to be worshiped, and they are openly breaking it. This is rebellion, and God does not like this. He hates this. We're going to see just how much in a second. So the very first thing that we learn about God's people when they rebel against God by worshiping an idol, they pervert or corrupt the true worship of the living God. This is very important. How we worship matters to him. Secondly, when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol, they will often need a mediator to intercede on their behalf in order to quell or calm the anger of God so he won't consume them. The term consume is destroy or annihilate. This is very tough language, 
But this is the language that the author of the scripture is using. So let's take a look at verses 6 to 14. Then they arose early on the next day, the children of Israel did, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Many scholars believe this is a reference to a sexual orgy where this is going on. Okay? And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for, listen, your people, God says. They're not my people anymore. They're your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They perverted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, destroy them, all of them. And I will make of you, Moses, a great nation." I will start all over again, and I will use you as the seed by which it is done. Watch how Moses responds. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? They're not my, they're not my people, Lord. They're your people. Okay? Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Why would he do that? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Remember you said that, Lord? If you destroy them, what good is your word? Who can trust you? And what happened as a result of Moses' intercession? So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. The only thing that kept the Israelites alive was that Moses interceded for them as a mediator. What keeps people from being judged by God today when they take objects and use them and associate God's holy presence with something that was made with human hands is the intercession of Jesus Christ. God gets angry with this. You say, why does God get so angry at idolatry? Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. You get married, for those of you who are married, you say I do to your spouse. You make a covenant a legally binding contract between you two that excludes everyone else. It's a special relationship. Before the ink is dry and your marriage certificate, your spouse cheats on you. How would you feel? Hurt? Betrayed? Angry? That's exactly how God feels. Before the ink, the blood is dry on their clothing, solidifying and reinforcing and making valid their commitment formally, they cheat on him by worshiping an idol. And God has been cheated on, and he's hurt, and he's angry, and he wants to destroy them. The only thing that keeps the people alive is what goes on on the mountain as Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. 
When God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol, they will often need a mediator to intercede on their behalf in order to quell the anger of God so he won't consume them. Idolatry is serious. Thirdly, when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol, God's leaders will often exonerate or clear themselves of any involvement or responsibility in the people's sin against God. Verses 15 to 24. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, because God sent him down. And the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other, they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on tablets. Interesting, he engraves on the tablets. Aaron is engraving gold calf. Interesting contrast. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, no, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as, he became, as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf, Moses did, and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot. When he saw what God saw, he reacted the same way as God reacted. And he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. This was symbolic because it represents and pictures what the Israelites have done in violating the second commandment. They broke them. You break one, you broke them all. Is that true? Then he took the calf which they had made. He burned it in the fire and ground it into powder and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. What is, what's going on here? To burn something with fire, to ground something with powder, and to scatter on the water, this was a way of showing in a picture, in a demonstration of completely destroying the idol. Then he makes the children drink it. By drinking it, they will take it into their body and then it will come out of their body never to use the idol again, ever. It is a picture of complete, utter destruction of the idol. That's what Moses is doing here. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And so Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. Everything that he said up to this point is true. That is a verbatim of what the Israelites said when they first went up to Moses. This is where he goes off the tracks. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into a fire, and this calf came out. Really? Is that what happened, Aaron? They gave it to me? No, you told them to give it to you. But he doesn't want to implicate himself, does he? And if, instead of acknowledging his own personal involvement in making the idol, he just says, I cast it into the fire, and whoop, it magically came out. I remember one time, I, I don't know about, I hated pork chops when I was little. I couldn't stand pork chops. 
And every time my mother made pork chops, I would have to sit at the table, and I could not leave the table until everything was done. Well, one particular day, I'm sitting at the table. We had pork chops. Everyone was done with their meal. My sister's out playing hide-and-seek, and I could hear the kids playing, and I wanted to go out and play. I didn't want to sit there and eat pork chops and home fries. I hated home fries back then. Now I love them, but back then I hated them. So I had a whole plate of pork chops and home fries. And guess what's sitting to my left was the trash barrel. So my parents went outside, and within five minutes of my parents going outside, I took, the tr- I took my plate, dumped it in the trash. That's what I did, right? I said, Mom, I'm all done. She came in, she goes, there's no way you ate all that food that fast. No way. So she looks in the garbage disposal to see if I had throw it, thrown it in the garbage disposal. And I said, no, I'd, I'm telling you, I ate the whole thing. While I was saying that, I was leaning up against the garbage. I didn't want her to go in there. And I, had, and I had a guilty conscience, so I was leaning up against it. She goes, why are you leaning? And I was, must have been 10 years old. She goes, why are you leaning up against the trash barrel? Wastebasket. I said, no reason. She goes, move. I said, why? She said, move. So I moved, and she, <laughs> she pressed on the little the foot pedal, right? The little foot pedal where the top comes up. She opens up. The top lever pops up. <laughs> she looks down. She looks at me. She looks back down. She says, what's that? So I come over. I look down. I says, they look like pork chops. She says, how did they get in there? I says, I have no idea. I have no clue how they got in there. She goes, you don't know how they got in there? I said, they must have, I don't know. I don't know. It just went from the table to the, I wouldn't, I wouldn't admit my own guilt. The excuses that we come up with without, that, that, that doesn't matter how ridiculous it sounds, we will not want to admit when we're wrong. That's what Aaron, the leader of the people, okay? And my point is this. The scripture is telling us is this, that when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol, God's leaders who are often personally involved in this kind of worship will often exonerate themselves of any involvement or responsibility in the people's sin against God, and they will blame it all on the people. That's what's happening here. Just keep that in mind. Fourthly, when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol... It will often lead to division and conflict among God's people. Verses 25 to 29. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Division. Some people are on one side. The others are on the other side. And he said to them, he said to the Levites, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said 
to the Levites, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. Set yourselves apart that he, the Lord, may bestow on you a blessing this day. Why? For every man has opposed, was in conflict with his son and his brother. There was conflict here. This is a tough passage. Say, what in the world is going on here? Douglas Stewart, an Old Testament scholar, says this. At first glance, it might seem that God was ordering the Levites to kill everyone else. But the wording is not actually intended to imply that. What the Levites were to do was to go back through the camp from one end to the other, which means carefully and systematically approaching everyone and finding out whether or not they intend to return to God, abandoning their idolatry. Those found to be committed to idolatry must be killed. Those sorry for being caught up in it must now actively repent, by actively repenting, must be spared. A modern personal a modern person accustomed to the sentimentalism of Western liberal thinking might find the idea of killing idolaters impossible to justify. Moses, on the other hand, on the other hand understood that leaving idolaters in the midst of Israel, God's people, to influence others away from the opportunity for eternal life was impossible to justify. God revealed to him that a fight was underway over saving truth. Think about this. The whole nation rebelled against God by worshiping an idol. Now Moses says, all those who are on God's side come to me. And so those who are going to go to, those who wanted to worship God in truth the way he wants them to are going to go to Moses. So now you have division within God's people. Some people are going to worship God the way he wants. Others who are claiming to be God's people are going to worship him in a way that he does not want. So what happens between God's people? There's conflict between God's people. Some are actually going to defend idolatry. And so what happens? There's going to be conflict. Notice what happened with the Levites. Gird your sword on you. What does the New Testament represent? What's the New Testament language for sword? In Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and sharper, powerful than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and in joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God, the Bible, is the sword by which we are to fight against those who say that idolatry is acceptable, even if you're using Christian uh, images to support such worship and representation. And there are many Christians today who will do and support such objects and say, it's okay to do this. It's okay. We don't believe that the objects are actually objects. We don't believe that they're God, but they represent and they're a point of contact by which we worship the invisible God. And they use them in worship. This is not something that God accepts or permits, or he allows it, but it's not something that he wants. And so now you see God's people arguing and there's conflict over this whether these things should be used or not and if you look at the history of the church they actually they fought over this whether or not objects should be used in worship of God all of this simply to say that when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol it will bring conflict and division among the people of God 
That's what happens. It's what's happened here. And he expects those who know the truth, truth, who worship God in spirit and in truth without any physical representation of God to speak God's word and to remain loyal to him, even if you have family members or friends who like to use idols or images to worship. We can't compromise and say this is acceptable. It's not acceptable. There's a reason for that, as we'll see as we continue with the message. But it does bring conflict within the church. It can, and it has. We need to know God's word and be able to use God's word to bear on such issues. Exodus 32 would be one of those passages. Fifthly, when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol, they will often suffer divine judgment as a consequence of their sin. Verses 30 to 35. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, everybody. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. I'm going up to see if your sin can be covered and God will forgive you for what you have done. That's what he wants to do. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, there's a hyphen there. Moses says, Oh God, if you will forgive their sin. The hyphen is to show that Moses got so emotional in his prayer request on behalf of his people, he couldn't finish the words. He, he couldn't think of the, he couldn't bear the thought that God would judge them and, and, and annihilate them for their sin. Oh God. I want you to take my life instead. But if not, pray that you will blot me out of your book, which you have written. Erase me from the living book of life, from the book of life. Expunge me from your book of life. If, if, if you're going to wipe them out, then take my place instead. That's what Moses is saying. And the Lord said to Moses, whomever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you, Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. They experienced judgment. You say, I thought God wasn't going to judge them. Earlier on, we saw that God wasn't going to annihilate them. Yes, that's true. God did not annihilate them. He wasn't going to wipe them out. But he was going to allow them to suffer some kind of plague as a result of their sin. Sin has consequences, as we all know. And theirs was a plague because of their sin. And so we see that when God's people rebel against God by worshiping an idol, they will often suffer divine judgment as a consequence of their sin. Idolatry is serious. It's serious. Worshiping God in a way that he does not want to be worshiped, using something that is physical or tangible, when God revealed himself and manifested himself in the Old Testament, it was by fire, pillar of fire by night, smoke, pillar of cloud by day. He doesn't want anything representing his hidden, his hidden glory. If there's any image of God, it's you and it's me. That's it. So now I want to come to one more question that's important. I want to touch on this. 
And that's the question, why did God's people rebel and make such an object in the first place? What would lead people to make an idol or an object of worship? Why would they do that? First of all, one of the reasons why God's people rebel and worshiped an idol was because they were experiencing fear and anxiety at that time. Fear and anxiety at that time. Go back to verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. The people's first inclination to do this started when they saw that Moses, the mediator, delayed from coming down the mountain. Where is our, our Savior? Where is the one that God has saved us? Jim, uh, John Durham notes this. He says, The impression given by the report of Israel's reaction to Moses' lengthy absence on Mount Sinai is one of frightened impatience. Any absence of their leader, the one who, was, who has been their representative to God from the moment of his return to Egypt, would have been unsettling, causing anxiety and uneasiness. His absence in such a place with so much yet to be done by way of provision and guidance would have been problematic if even only a few days were involved. With the passage of a long period of time, the people are represented as nearly in a frenzy, some perhaps assuming Moses had deserted them, others more charitably fearing some tragedy had befallen their leader. This is the context with which the impulsive surge of the people against Aaron should be understood. And Peter ends notes this. He says, in light of this, Moses' delay in coming down, is it possible to read the story not only as an act of godless, godlessness, rebellion, but as an act of panic on the part of the people who fear that they have lost contact with their God? It may well be that their reaction is a mixture of some panic and a contempt for Moses, perhaps as a result of the delay. It is like a child waiting to be picked up from school. Their parent is over an hour late. The child panics, becomes worried, and then just gets angry, taking it out on the parent when he or she arrives. The delay is causing anxiety within the people, and some of them are starting to experience fear, fear and anxiety within the people because they don't have their leader in physical sight cause them, one of the factors, in leading them to ask to have an idol. It was fear and anxiety. Secondly, a second reason why God's people rebelled and worshiped an idol was because they had weak leaders over them. It's the same passage. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron. The better translation is against Aaron. They were upset with Aaron and said to him, come make us gods that shall go before us. This was not a friendly group coming to make a request, but a hostile group perhaps threatening Aaron into compliance. They were upset. They were angry. And Aaron, as their leader, should have withstood the pressure that was placed upon him to make an idol. But he was a weak leader, and he succumbed to the pressure. When you have weak leadership, and especially godly leadership, or those who are in positions of leadership on behalf of God, when they succumb to the pressure and they're weak, something like this can happen. 
So those are two very important factors that led to the making of an idol. And thirdly, which is not on the screen, a third reason why God's people rebelled and worshipped an idol was because of their inability to see that the spiritual world is primary to and in control of the physical and visible world. Those are three very important factors. Now think about this. We live in a society today that's what? Anxiety-ridden? There's a lot of fear. A lot of fear and a lot of anxiety today. We're also living in a time where there's a lot of weak leaders. Where's the leadership? And we live in a society where people feel that they need to see something in order to be comforted. Peter Enns once again notes that by making a golden calf, the Israelites adopt a pagan representation of their God. They now have a concrete point of contact between people and God. So when you have a society where there's a lack of leadership and there's a lot of fear and anxiety, people want to see something. It makes them feel more comfortable, more safe, something physical that they can identify with or touch. This was the context in which the idol was made. And when we look at the times, the times in which we're living in, there's a lot of fear, lack of leadership, and it is an environment like this where an image could be made that people begin to worship. I'm reminded in the book of Revelation that there were two beasts that come out of the sea. One beast, actually there's two beasts. One beast comes out of land, one beast comes out of the sea. And the one beast that comes out of the sea in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, talks about making an image for people to worship. There's an image that's going to be made of some sort. And people are going to be forced to worship it. And whoever doesn't worship this image that's going to be made, the text says they're going to be killed. We see the erosion of individual freedom, people being forced to do something they don't want to do. If we're in a society where there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, weak leaders, the society is ripe for something to come in the future at some point where an image or an idol will be made and people will worship it. Think about it this way. Do we not, do we not live in a society where many people are kneeling today? Did you ever notice that? We live in a society where everyone's kneeling. You watch football games, people are kneeling. Why do they kneel? Social injustice, racial injustice, they protest it. Right? If a player gets hurt on the field, the players kneel. You kneel because of giving respect, deference to the player who's hurt. When I played football, you never kneeled. It just wasn't something you did. And I'm not making a comparison between right or wrong, you should or you shouldn't kneel. I'm just showing that things have changed over time. You didn't see a lot of people kneeling when I was younger in my time. I don't know about you, but did you see a lot of people kneeling at, for events? You didn't. But today you see a lot of people kneeling for a whole host of reasons. Protesting, racial injustice, you see people kneeling. What does kneeling represent and signify? Like I said, respect, deference, and submission. When you kneel, it's an act of submission. 
whether, regardless of the reason why you do it, that's what, they, that's what it represents, submission. And we're seeing a society that is kneeling from upper echelons of government. They kneel. I saw a, a, a picture in the paper where hundreds of people in England were all kneeling in a parking lot on one knee. It unsettled me. I'm not saying people shouldn't kneel for social injustice. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying kneeling is wrong. I'm trying to show that over time we're seeing a society that's becoming very comfortable with kneeling. Submission. Lack of individual freedom being taken away. If we're living in a society where there's a lot of anxiety and fear, biblical illiteracy, there's more biblical illiteracy now than there ever was. We're setting a stage for the possibility of someone or something coming along, forcing people to worship an idol or an image of some kind. And because society is so used to kneeling, it's just, it's familiar, we're used to it, it's no big deal. It makes someone like a possible antichrist to come in the future to do his thing without a lot of resistance. That seems to be where we're, where we're going. Idol worship. God is against this. And we need to be aware of what his word is saying. Because Exodus 32 may be a very important passage that, may be, that will have to be preached on in the future as things continue to unfold in this world. It's a powerful passage. It's a difficult one. But God is clear with regards to idolatry. He hates it. He is invisible, and his glory is impinged whenever and hindered whenever we take something and try to aid our worship of him with it. God is invisible, God is holy, and the way we worship him ought to be in spirit and in truth with no physical aid or representation of who he is, because nothing can ever accurately portray that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, uh, this story, which helps us to understand the seriousness of idolatry, which is spiritual adultery. You don't want anything made that represents who you are, because nothing can accurately do that. Lord, help us to know your word, the seriousness of idolatry. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know and be aware of what is going on in our world. You said that in your word through the apostle Peter to be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Help us, Lord, not to be ignorant of his devices and not to succumb to pressure by society if it tells us, if we're living at a time, to worship something that is an image of some sort, but to be faithful and true to your word, because your word is clear on this issue. We shall not make any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. For you alone are holy, you are invisible, and we worship you in that way. And we give you thanks and praise for all that you do in and through us. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Our final worship song this morning is Amazing Grace. Would you please stand if you are able?
We believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again. And he desires us to worship him with no physical aid whatsoever, but to be committed to him no matter what happens going forward. We are faithful to him because he died, he died for us and gave us life. We ought to be living for him and to be completely, totally committed to him, no matter what the cost may be for us who live in the times in which we live. Amen? Saved by God's grace. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.